Episode 7 of Pounding the Table. Today is Sunday, August 16th, 2020. And it's a very special day today as my stepsister is actually getting married. So I'm waking up the vocal cords here a little bit. I'm going to be emceeing their wedding. So huge shout out. Congrats to Nicole and Jeremy. Mazel tov. We got a great show here lined up as always. Tony, tell these newbies who we are at Pounding the Table. How's it going, pounders and future pounders? Uh, For those of you who are new, Pounding the Table is a podcast by Avi Mash and yours truly, talking about the stock market, the art of options trading. And each week we analyze the news and provide our opinions and insights around how we think the markets will be impacted from it. So I just got to throw this disclaimer in here. It's boring as hell, but we got to say it. The thoughts on this podcast are purely that of opinion of our own personal investments. Everything said on this episode and every episode of Pounding the Table, as well as on our Twitter account, are not and should never be used as financial advice, recommendations, or solicitation. Just your entertainment. Exactly right. And if you like our show, please hit the support button on Anchor. Your donations are helping to support the show. And every single month, we're going to be donating 100% of these proceeds to support a nonprofit organization. So yeah, enough with the boring crap. Let's get this party started, baby. Raise the roof, Avi. (laughs) So as always, man, we start the episodes with how we did last week. We are human. We had a few faults, but let's jump right into it and and keep it 100 as always, right? So first one, Stone, ticker symbol S-T-N-E, went from 49 to 48.21. Not horrible. Yeah. So, I mean, I've been in this stock since 24, right? I think it's a huge company. I think it's really, really undervalued. And you compare it to like Mercado Libre, they're in really similar spaces, both in Latin America, primarily like a lot of their income comes from Brazil, but they had some massive news this week. So it exploded, went all the way to 54 and then trailed back down as they were selling more tech into the end of the week. But, you know, I just wanted to shed a little light on it. Berkshire, Warren Buffett has a 7% stake in this bad boy. So that's pretty great. Alex Sasserdote, Whale Rock, one of the best portfolio managers ever, is loading the hell out of this one too. You know, he raised the Whale Rock stake by 71%, now holds 3.8 million shares, and they're now a top 10 holder of the name. I like to always follow the greats, both the old and the new, and it's a it's a rare situation to see a combination of them in a type of market like this in the same stock. Had massive news that they were interested in buying, combining with links and e-commerce solutions provider also in Latin America. So this is a very spade is a spade situation here. Same rev and more profit than Mealy, actually, which is my longest long, my favorite stock. But it only trades at a fourth of the price. I, I'm going to give this one a 200 long-term price target minimum. And I'm not talking in a month or two. Like, this could take many years. But I do think it's going to go there. F-U-T-U. The Chinese stock went from 36 to 33. Don't know much about that one, Tony. Is this uh, something you're going to be continuing to pound the table on? Yeah, I'm, I'm still really pounding the table on this one. They're only down because of their earnings and, you know, the Chinese-U.S. rival tensions that are more and more prevalent in the markets these days. Uh, you know, it is a Chinese company. But... 
you know, let me tell you about these EPS here is expected to be 0.1 and they came in at 0.24. That's a massive V by like 14 cents. That's huge. And their uh, estimated revenue was 45 million and they did 88.7 million. It's, it's insane. That's a massive beat. Still very long. This one, as soon as Chinese tensions come down, I really think that this is going to be a long-term winner. Like I'm not going to sell. In fact, I'm adding more. So keeping it consistent here with China, we got Dow. So D-A-O on the ticker symbol. Another one that came down a little bit this week went from 43 to 35. We pounded on this one still? Yeah, so this is another one that I, I said I was starting to just dabble my fingers. And we were just looking at this one for the week. You know, in the next coming months, we thought it would go higher. And when I still do, right, this is once again an impacted stock from the U.S.-China tensions. Their revenue is said to grow about 80% next year. And their losses narrowed by a third in the last earnings report. So, I mean, really not a bad earnings report, in my opinion. In fact, it's pretty good. With the trend in the sector, e-commerce, online learning, I think it's a really good long-term hold for me. I actually think I might be moving more money out of GSX, which I know has had a lot of you know short attacks by Citron, which I hate, and Andrew Left, which I hate. But you know, in my opinion, it's something that I really think is a long-term holder, something better than GSX. Another one was a massive pound here. So BioLife Solutions, ticker symbol BLFS, a lot of people were reaching out about that one. Went from twenty one fifty to eighteen fifty. Even though you did say this is a, a five year hold, we did get a little flack here on Twitter. So, are you sticking through that, or, or are you a little bit nervous here with that down? First of all, I don't get nervous, Avi. I just get prepared. But what I have to say about BLFS is, I said this was a five to fifteen year hold, right? I said I'm adding and I'll continue to add over time. I didn't think that the second I pounded the table, it was going to become the world changing company. It's the, the picks and shovels of generational change in healthcare, you know, CRISPR, Editas, NVTA, that huge new growth in software, biotech, massive change in, you know, the healthcare industry. Tesla went up and down between 150 and 400 for years. So five, 10 year, 15 year hold, lots of downgrades. That's why they took it down. It actually ripped on their earnings, which in my opinion, were pretty good. So 77% year over year rev growth, media rev growth, 27%. So it continues to support the rationale. It's what the CEO said of where the company should be. And in fact, they lost less per share than last year. So that's pretty good for me. And they said a lot of the issues that they had, even though they didn't really have a bad quarter in the slightest was due to the coronavirus. So really understandable here. Those are the ones that might get hit as hard in this time. So it's, it's okay with me. The next one, very near and dear to my heart, of course, Jumia, right? So Jumia, everyone was talking about this one from 19 to 14. I do want to reiterate that we've been pounding the table since seven, right? It went to 24. We then discussed that we took profits or Tony, you were lucky enough to take profits over 20. I'm still holding hundreds of shares of the stock. I'm going to be watching it closely. Are you, are you thinking Akuna Matata here? Should we not be worrying <laughs> about this? Or, well, or or do you think it's time to pull the plug on Junior? Yeah. It, it is a circle of life. I am less bullish because of their earnings, right? So in this time when e-commerce should be flourishing, and you've seen that with Shop, Amazon, Mealy, Etsy, everything is killing it. Jumia did not have the best earnings report, right? But they did have some good metrics. Their operating loss decreased by 44% year over year. Their gross profits reached 6 million euros. And then that's a comparison of a loss of 0.7 million in the last year's quarter at the same time. Annual active consumers were 6.8 million. So a year over year increase of 40%. But people are really worried here because the GMV, and so for people who don't know what that is, that's the total value of all stuff sold in the quarter, decreased by 13%. Honestly, kind of makes sense to me, right? Like 
it's a poor con- continent, right? I'm sure they all got hit pretty hard by the coronavirus and, you know, their economy was stalling, right? Like if the U.S. was in a tough spot, if Europe was in a tough spot, if Asia was in a tough spot, Africa would be in a tougher spot. So for me, it just kind of goes with the trend of what's been happening in the world, right? So we're still up 100% since we pounded the table. This thing went to 300%. So he- here's the thing that we want to reiterate. If we pound the table on something and it goes 300% and then it goes down 50% from that, are you happy or are you sad? Like you should be happy. That's the answer that you should be saying, right? You should be like, wow, this stock tripled in two or three weeks and I didn't take profits. I didn't consider my position or my risk tolerance. And like, that's always on you. And that's always on me. And that's always on Avi, but only for our own portfolios. So that's how the way it works here at Pounding the Table. Exactly. We were human last week, but let's get back into it. SPG, Simon Property Group, ripped about 10% from 62 to 68. So, you know, that Amazon news we talked about last week of Amazon coming into old JC Penney stores and retrofitting them to be fulfillment warehouse centers. That's, I mean, that's huge. Like they're, they're showing that they're in the position to take that change with confidence and go into something that is going to provide them with consistent income, right? Amazon moves in, they're not going to move out. They're going to make a good deal and they're going to stay there for years and years and years and other companies will follow in suit, right? So despite that malls are basically like desolate call of duty map kind of things right now, um, their net income was 254 million. So 83 cents per diluted share as compared to the last years of 495 million. Right. So I guess mall activity is way, way worse than down 50%, but their net income was only down 50%. They're still giving you a dividend at about 10% a year total. So, I mean, in my opinion, that's not bad, but here's something really interesting. And people want to know like, when's this going to turn and when's this going to look better occupancy in malls and for rental occupancy, not people's occupancy, but the rental properties that are paying rent and in malls was at 92.9% in June. In my opinion, that's really good, right? Base minimum rent per square foot was an increase of 2.8% year over year. So prices to rent those malls aren't going down. And people renting those malls aren't going down. Right now, they're, they're just looking for people to go back into the economy and make it flourish again. So in my opinion, right, this is only going to get better and better. It's down from 170. I know everyone's bearish on commercial real estate. Me too. But this is not the same situation as like your standard CVS on a corner store. So you think a lot of those could be like long-term leases that they, they, they can't get out of, for instance, a few months from now or even a year from now? Do you think that will still be even the 90s percent? Yeah, I mean, I, I really don't see it going down. In fact, especially I mean, I've been seeing a lot of people getting new leases in malls because they're giving them at a discount, which is interesting because even though they are giving them at a discount, they're increasing their total base minimum rent per square foot year over year, which is still very bullish, right? That's what you want to see. You want to see that the prices overall don't go down. Sure, like they'll cut a deal here. They'll raise the price for someone else. Maybe that's Amazon like I was talking about. So in my opinion, net net, this thing yields a 10% dividend. So you're not going to have Mall of America shut down. Maybe in 10 years, but then it's going to be flying on a spaceship outside the world, like in the Expanse <laughs> show on Amazon. So it is what it is. I'm, I'm, I'm long. In fact, I'm going to get longer because I do like the dividend. I want to move into more of these cyclical beaten down stocks in the coming times. Awesome. Let's get into one we never talk about at all. Uh, <laughs> Mercado Libre, right? We, I don't think we've mentioned it ever on this show. Total joke. Definitely we talk not. about Definitely. this one every single time. So uh, Melly went from 1193, closed at 1270, high on earnings, closed the week at 1156. So uh, Vilanki Prashant, probably mispronounced that, so I apologize there. But AO, do you see Melee, Melee, however you like to pronounce it, coming back to 1300 soon? They pulled it down after a blowout quarter of the tech sell-off. Tony, are you still going to be pounding the table? Is this the last we're going to hear from Mercado Libre? 
you will never stop hearing me talk about it, Millie, like ever. This is like the number one stock on the market right now. Like if I had to pound the table for one thing that I'm like 99.999999% sure on that I'm going to be, it is my largest position and there's a damn good reason for it. The answer is yes. Like, yes, yes, yes. Like this is not a time to be like, Mealy sucks. I'm going to sell out of it. Let me just tell you about their earnings, which were ridiculous, right? They were expecting 10 cents EPS over a dollar is what they reported. They blew it out of the water and they're expanding into Mexico. They started a credit card business. I'm just going to keep saying all the great things that they're doing. And so their net revenues were 878 million up 120% year over year on currency neutral basis. That's ridiculous. 11.2 billion total payment volume up 142% year over year. What? And here's the thing that made Jumia crack, but this is what's making Mealy boom, is $5 billion GMV up 101% year over year. So they're selling 101% more total cost of goods in this quarter versus the last quarter. This is freaking simple to me, especially with everything else they're doing. This is honestly the best stock in the market, in my opinion. And, and you mentioned something interesting to me too. Obviously, we live here. A lot of us are listening. About 80% of our listeners coming from here in America. You were mentioning South America has about double the amount of population here as the US. Yeah, it's 646 million or so in the US has about 330 million. Right. I was looking at this graph and it was talking about Mercado Pago and how almost everyone, like all these businesses use it. Like that's the, that's just the standard quintessential payment method there. When you basically colonize and just implement your stuff in an entire continent, the sky's the limit for you. And they've only had 1% total world penetration of e-commerce. And that's not even their main business, in my opinion. It's the payment processing. They are the PayPal, the Square, the MasterCard and Visa of Latin America. And they only had 25% of people or something with like bank accounts. And now it's like 40% plus of people can pay. And that's only going to grow, as you can see from the data. Let's get into the earnings. As we predicted, well, as you predicted, because you are the brains (laughs) of the show. I'm just the face and and beautiful, uh, good looking man here. Uh, You said last week that the good stocks are going to fall. The ones that you think would be beaten down and destroyed would rip. I finally figured this out on my own, you know, with Mercado Libre and then Jumia and pulled the trigger on some puts, even though I own a ton of DraftKings stock, even though they did very well, of course, that stock went down as well. We got a tweet here from young Pat Mayo. Gents, love the podcast. Appreciate all that you're doing. Quick question. Could you just discuss the best strategies playing into earnings? So specifically, illogical stock fluctuations after the earnings are reported. His example here was Upwork, which beat expectations, yet the stock dropped 14% the next day. So Really in line with what I just mentioned here, but anything else to add on here, Tony? Yeah, in my opinion, they're they're just selling the best winners, the biggest beaters of these earnings reports, right? Unless you're like one of these huge apples doing a stock split, Tesla's doing a stock, like anything that's having incredible earnings is getting beaten down. You saw this with Amazon and Shop, best quarters that they ever had of all time, and they're down. So it's just just the way that the situation's working out with the market right now. I mean, it, it, it is pretty logical to me those that we didn't expect to do well like the UAL the SBGs and the bookings are all the ones that ripped right like you let the expectations go all the way to the floor anything that's not the world's worst report is going to be good for it so you know everyone's already sold out of these things so when they see that it's not as bad as they thought they're going to buy in but it just reminds me of a buy the rumor sell the news event on a much bigger total market general thematic sense so now that earnings are basically over i think the money will come back into these winners soon enough 
Uh, it's just a matter of time. So we talked in depth here last week about Livongo Health, LVGO, and Teladoc, TDoc. You were mentioning to me before the show that you found out more news that we did not discuss last week that you wanted to mm-hmm. add on here. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's nothing massive, right? Like nothing data-driven. But here, here's something that I, I was looking more into when I realized why they were selling off so strongly. So these were both huge holdings of a ton of funds. Right, like a lot of funds liked both companies because even though they were in a similar space, they were doing different things. Right. So now that they're together in their portfolios, they see that as one joint risk. So let's say you're a fund and you've got five percent in LVGO and five percent in TDOC. Now you've got ten percent in both, technically, right? Like since they merged. So what they're doing is they're selling either half their LVGO and half their TDOC, or they're selling all their LVGO or all their TDOC. So that is why the price is going down. And now that the funds, I'm sure they've started settling out their positions because they can't go over that risk concentration for a long time. Um, that's like kind of like legal on their like portfolios basis, right? On their PPM, that's what they're going to say. Like, we're not going to be over concentrated in X and X or Y and Y. So in my opinion now, I'm going to make this my second longest long. Like I, Tesla's currently my second longest long just because of the split news. But LVGO and TDOC, in my opinion, that's a game-changing company. And especially now, it's only worth like $30 billion. I don't see it not going to $200, $300 billion in five to 10 years. So again, we really want to just pound this home for our listeners. We are long-term investors on the most part for a lot of these. And so those daily, weekly moves, especially since we cannot manage everyone's account and nor is that our jobs, just wanted to mention there that a lot of these picks are going to be longer term picks overall. Absolutely, Avi. So as I discussed and got everyone very excited for, it is time for another pounder in the table thesis pick. So <laughs> last week we had OTRK 57 last Friday down to about 50 at the close. What happened there? You still liking this one, Tony? Yeah, I mean, here's another thing like we were just talking about. I got in this one at 49, right? So I'm still up on it. Went all the way to 64. Obviously took a little bit of profits there. And I reloaded down when it was about, you know, 43, 44, right? So this thing's got 46% short float. So the shorts hammer this one after it rips. But then it rips even harder because even more people get short and they have to cover, especially since they had 125% revenue growth. So, you know, in my opinion, the market is up and down as always. You know, Portnoy says stocks only go up. That's honestly kind of true if you don't look for five or 10 years. But, you know, in the short term, you're going to have these swings, right? You're not going to get the kind of gains that you want if you're like a long-term growth investor and you want that max yield ROI unless you're able to deal with the ups and downs, right? So just have your thesis, keep it intact. And if anything changes on your thesis, then you can get out. But otherwise, in my opinion, manage your account, take your, take your you know, profits at some point, and you just trim and re-add lower. And this kind of thing, like, I, that's all I do really all day long. You know, if something spikes hard, I'll sell a little bit. If it dies, I'll add a lot more. So I'm always just kind of balancing out things because, you know, nothing goes straight up forever. Right, what goes up must come down, like in that Adam Sandler movie. So, a buddy of yours, without further ado, won this week's Found in the Table thesis pick. Uh, so, at EHDENO3, selected Nano X. So, the ticker symbol is NNOX. And this one's exciting. This is actually our first that we called out before it IPO. So, this one's really dope. Reminds me a little bit of ISRG, which is one of my favorites. Fits right into your strategy. Market cap is between 663 million and 746. And that one's going to IPO on Friday, August 21st. Why'd you pick this one, Johnny? 
Yeah, so we had a lot of good picks for this week, but I mean, I just have not been this excited for an IPO in a long time, right? So let me just tell you about the facts here. It's a startup out of Israel, which we all know, obviously, they're rock stars in medicine as a country in total. So this company developed a small, low-cost scanning system and medical screening system as a service, right? Nanox. Dot cloud. This replaces large and costly machines and the corresponding software that they use for x-rays, CAT scans, PET scans, and other body imaging services. And that's pretty much all the scans you can get. Um, so that's a lot that they cover. They got money raised from South Korean companies, also masters in medicine, right? Like, look how well they handled the coronavirus. The IPO's valuation is so low, in my opinion. Just actually, I'm kind of thinking this might be one of those big C situations where they price it stupidly low. So the institutions and underwriters can get a bigger percentage of it and make more money. There's just some more crookery, but hopefully not. Hopefully it can open to that 16 to $18 price range because I will actually just load the boat without even looking at whatever it opens at. Their ARC image processor is only 70 kilograms, right? And versus the 2,000 kilograms of an average CT scanner's weight. That's just ridiculous, right? You're cutting the, the, the weight by 1 20th. And you know, that's just like the biggest deal for hospitals is like moving these CT scanners, getting them in. And the price production cost for them is $10,000 for one of these machines. 10000 Normally, the other companies sell them for one to three million. So they take images in a fraction of a second, right? So people are worried about radiation. So you can't get as many scans in X number of days. So think about this. It takes it in a one-fourth or one-tenth of a second. It takes the images. You can get as many scans as you want as many. So you're going to be safer, you're going to be healthier, and you're going to know what's wrong with you faster. And it's not going to damage your health. Every hospital is going to want this. And I'll tell you what, they already inked a $174 million deal to distribute a thousand of these across Australia, New Zealand, and Norway. And they also inked another deal in February to sell 3000 of these to the US 3000. So it's 4000. And let me tell you, on just a 1000, that $174 million deal only cost them $10 million to produce these machines. Oh. I don't know what they're selling them for, and I don't know what like the actual cost is, but think about that freaking margin on that. That's absurd. And the best part is it's a software as a service thing. So every month the hospital pays them. That $174 million deal is going to get them $58 million of perpetual revenue annual. And the 3000 is going to get them $160 plus million perpetual. So already just off those two deals, once they get approved by the FDA, which why wouldn't it? The things like I looked into the research, in my opinion, it's a killer. Why wouldn't they be making $200 million perpetual and $700 million up front? That's, the, that's their market cap. They should be a $7 billion company. So I'm going to load the crap out of this one. I could be wrong. I don't think I am. But in my opinion, this is probably the coolest IPO to IPO in a long time. Yeah, the shipping cost alone <laughs> just stopped the yeah, weight from exactly. 70 kilograms at 2000. I, I I was in logistics my first job out of school. For the first time, I actually just saw PT and CAT scanners being shipped on a truckload. And so just the sheer scale there and the cost to be able to get that out is going to be incredible. Mm-hmm. So that, thanks for bringing that one to my attention uh, and to all of our pounders. Let's get into the impact of the stool president. And we are talking Dave Portnoy. We are not talking the king of poops. Allie True comes in. Shout out to Allie. I see you uh, posting quite a bit to pounding the table. You sent this interesting quote from Bloomberg. It says something about just how much trouble America is in these days that Dave Portnoy has now replaced Warren Buffett 
as the guiding light during this crisis. Share a little bit more about Dave Portnoy's impact on the markets. Adrian Lecter put together some data here. Is it just coming from Robinhood traders? Is this having ripple effects throughout the market? Yeah. So, I mean, this is something that's just like a paradigm shift in the market. You can just kind of see this by the amount of accounts being opened up with these retail brokerages, right? Like E-Trade had five times the number of accounts opened. I'm sure all the other brokers had the same thing. And the amount of people trading options is at an all-time freaking massive high. People are just in there looking for yield. They got nothing better to do. Sports betting has been down for months and months and months. You can't go to the casino. So somebody has to get their fix somewhere. But, but I mean, here's, here's the thing. Like, when you really consider what the market is, it's just a big pot of supply and demand. Right? Like you've got some, you got the supply and demand, and then you've got the other factors like the Fed's liquidity and the interest rates that give you the average like price of what things could be at. So Adrian Lecter, um, you know, just to shout him out, he's about to launch a newsletter exploring topics in finance, economics, and trading through the lens of data science, which is a big part of my major at Duke. I love data science pretty much. If you can't put data behind anything, you shouldn't do anything. Uh, you can get early access to it by emailing him at Adrian, A-D-R-A-N, at Lecter Ventures, L-E-C-H-T-E-R, ventures.com. Highly recommend him and his work. Um, guy's a legend, and he really just cranks stuff out like a robot. But his last paper, you know, I read this over the weekend, and he said that the amount of Robinhooders who owned SPY actually had a really strong impact in predicting the price of Apple from September 19th to July 2020, as well as the overall indices in general. So Robintrack, which is the free site that was giving you what people are buying and selling on Robinhood, how much they're buying and selling per day, and you know, the amount of users in those stocks is now gone. And that's because Robinhood is a bunch of crooks. They're selling that to Citadel, who needs the help because they suck. But in my opinion, right, like they're kind of just doing this to shed away the people who are just trying to get that free data. So they want to isolate it and give it to the institutions, which obviously was going to happen, in my opinion, naturally, because nothing that has value is free. And if somebody can make money off of it, they're going to. But you, know, you can see that I looked at all these charts. So you can check out his thesis on this. It's really, really interesting that the charts of the amount of Robinhooders who hold these bigger indices in the SPYs, the QQQs, the IWMs, and the ones who hold things like Apple, Amazon, and all these other very, very highly talked about stocks was a synonymous trend, right? Like they overlapped perfectly. So the more people who bought Apple on Robinhood, the higher Apple went. The more people who bought SPY on um, Robinhood, the higher the general markets went. So you can clearly see that, you know, Dave Portnoy, right? Like he's just screaming, everything goes up, stocks go up, right? Like long-term, yeah, I definitely agree. Like, you know, he has his ups and downs, but saying that he's like, you know, not worth to trade is saying that like, I'm not worth to trade. Anyone's not worth to trade. I think anyone can trade. Anyone can invest. That's for sure, right? Like maybe not everyone can trade. Maybe they don't have the time or the interest to do it. But you can see that this market is clearly a supply and demand driven economy. And that's no question in my mind, especially based on this data that he provided. So Bloomberg, you know, I have respect for Bloomberg. I really don't think that that quote is as cool as I think it, as most people think it is. I would really just take into consideration that just because the masses have access to this doesn't mean you should shit on the masses because you know what? Everyone's part of the masses. People give them a lot of shit. Portnoy is a genius. I get his game. I think it's hilarious and it's brilliant. And it is getting tons of new investors, of course, into the game. Speaking of influence, of course, he just met with the Winklevoss twins. Great video online, has millions of views. The Winklevoss twins are famous, of course, from Facebook initially. They also started Gemini. So of course, we're always talking about stocks and options and the news, but 
as more and more people have started talking about cryptocurrencies, of course, with Dave Portnoy and everyone else jumping into BTC, Ethereum, getting FOMO around some of these new ones. We'll discuss Link here in just a bit. Let's start with the blue well of them all, though, Bitcoin. Tony, I know I first heard about Bitcoin in June. I think it was 2017 or 18. Huge shout out to Nathaniel Ginsberg, who's a great friend of mine. I was out in Portugal, and him and his friends were discussing all those cryptocurrencies. I thought they were talking about Beanie Babies. I had no idea what the hell they were talking about with these Digicoins, Digibytes, all these random different things. But wanted to give a shout out to Nathaniel, besides just being a friend of mine. He's launched many seven-figure Amazon businesses and is a host on a great podcast called E-Commerce Exits. So I would definitely suggest listening to that as well. I know everyone kind of has a friend with some crazy Bitcoin success stories, but for those of you who are new or maybe just need a refresher uh, on Bitcoin, Tony, can you share a little bit about Bitcoin and the cryptocurrencies? And is this something you're going to be jumping back into? Yeah, I mean, in, in 2017, when this was all the rage, like I basically moved all my money out of stocks and into crypto, right? So like I was in Litecoin at 24, I was in Ethereum at like 68 and Bitcoin at like 400, right? So I got in these really, really low. Only regret is not buying more and holding all the way. I did some really cool arbitrage between different exchanges when they were all around. Asian exchanges, European exchanges, US exchanges, they had different prices. So like, you know, you buy on one, sell on the other buy on it, sell on the other, and then you just make that spread the whole time. So now that crypto has been booming again, I think I'm going to get back in right like late to the party, but I can't complain because a lot of my growth stocks have gone up way, 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 way more than Bitcoin and Ethereum uh, minus Link, of course, which is just like kind of a new game changer, in my opinion. So I'll just talk to you about Bitcoin if you don't know, or you know, if you already do, it's a little refresher. Bitcoin's a virtual currency, cryptocurrency. It's controlled by a decentralized network of users, right? So it's not directly subject to the whims of central banking authorities or national governments. I really like the Winklevoss's logic when they were talking to Portnoy, saying that gold is not finite, which is really true, right? Like someone could go mine a bunch of asteroids and get gold out and make it rain like sand, like Musk, obviously. Who else is going to do that? Musk. Bezos can try, but he's probably not going to be able to. The dollar of the U.S. and any other country are really subject to value changes. Like we've seen recently, the Fed's just printing burr, 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 digital printing. People are worried about inflation. Um, in my opinion, this is one of the advantages of Bitcoin. You've got greater liquidity relative to most other cryptos because it is the biggest and it is the, the storefront. It is the main crypto. Increasingly wide acceptance as a payment method. International transactions are easier than regular currencies. Lower transaction fees anonymity and privacy, right? That's the biggest part of it. It's why people really use it. Independence from political agents and creators. So you can't get a valuation of Bitcoin that's lower than it is or higher than it is because someone's going to do something policy-wise. And, you know, probably the biggest, best part that makes it different from gold, even though people think gold is finite on Earth. First of all, we haven't mined all the gold on Earth. Second, there's gold in the atmosphere and in the universe, right? So you can get that from almost anywhere over time. But it's got built-in scarcity. So only 21 million Bitcoins will ever exist. In my opinion, that's for me, like that's the real finite digital future of currency. It might take some years to adopt, but you already see companies like MasterCard. Facebook was even toying with the Libra coins. JP Morgan's doing the same, trying to back it with the dollar. This thing is not going away. And in my opinion, it will be what we use in the future. So how, how does the market work for Bitcoin, right? Obviously, stocks have earnings reports. They have news that changes people's opinions on it. Is Bitcoin, like, help me understand for our listeners as well, like, how, why does, why does Bitcoin go up and why does Bitcoin go down? Yeah, Bitcoin's probably the most pure investment asset. And I say that with like a couple grains of salt, but it, you know, in generality, it is, right? Like you don't have any influence from outside factors. You don't have an earnings report. All you have is 
usage, amount of transactions, you know, they speed increases over time, halvings, you know, right, which is like, you know, Bitcoins get valued never differently, like, because there's only 21 million that will ever exist. So that's really what people are trading off of. It's a really huge supply and demand kind of thing. And it's, you know, I found some interesting graphs saying that like it's tied to the growth of the money supply. So it's kind of interesting if you look at that data as well. So those different factors can move Bitcoin, especially, right, like somebody can buy a massive block of Bitcoin and shoot the thing up 2000 points. So, you know, if somebody buys 50 billion Bitcoin, that's going to make a huge, huge move because it's worth less than 200 billion. So really, really interesting to watch that, in my opinion, right? Like it's not something that you pour your whole life savings into, but I think it's like way better hedge than gold or silver, right? You're talking about gold last week saying it was a bad buy and same with silver. Gold went from 2050 to under 1900, silver went from 30 to 24. These things were moving like parabolic growth stocks. And there's nothing safe or hedgy about that. So everyone kind of knows Bitcoin. Another one that's very well known, but maybe not as well known as BTC uh, is Ethereum. And Tony, you were talking about how you absolutely love Ethereum. You were saying that it's kind of like the growth stock version of crypto. What's up with that? Like, why do you like Ethereum so much? How does it differ than Bitcoin? Are they both on the blockchain? Talk to us a little bit about why you really think Ethereum is the one to get into. Right. So, I mean, like, I don't think that Bitcoin's like bad to get into, in my opinion. I think that it's definitely risen a lot. And there's so much hype around it now that it's like less appealing to me to just like buy a big block of Bitcoin, right? It's like, I'd probably just dollar cost average it over, you know, like put a hundred bucks a week or you know, like whatever, you know, you can put in per week um, and just like slowly accumulate it. If you want like a currency hedge, if you want something better than gold and silver, in my opinion, that would be the play, you know, besides residential real estate now. Um, but Ethereum for me is like Bitcoin that's gotten an injection from Musk, you know, like it's like got a lot more potential to do stuff in the world besides just being a store of value, which obviously has value in itself, you know, being a store of value. But Ethereum, you know, is a big, mis- big misunderstanding that a lot of people have is that Ethereum is intended to compete with Bitcoin. It's actually a complement to Bitcoin. So it's got all the core blockchain benefits that we just described as Bitcoin. But instead of just being a store of value and for, you know, payment transactions, Ethereum deploy smart contracts and decentralized apps and shortened called dapps pretty cool acronym there um, and they're built and run without any dime downtime any fraud um, you know any control or any interference from any third party so that's really really huge i mean if you think about that like it's got its own programming language so developers can li- literally build and run distributed apps right on their chain so you know, a huge advantage of it is because these days there's a lot of services that just charge commission fees just for you know simply providing an escrow service and a platform for users to trade goods and services on. But Ethereum's blockchain enables customers to trace the origins of the products that they're buying. And because of the smart contracts, which Bitcoin does not do, Bitcoin's just like the gold of this, basically the gold standard of cryptocurrency, which is, you know, essentially acts like gold. You know, this, this Ethereum ensures safe and fast trading for both parties without any intermediary. It just cuts out the middleman. Who And that's, you know, a bunch of these companies, that's what they're doing. You know, Amazon cuts out the middleman from retailers a lot. You know, that's, that's, that's the, the future of almost any industry. So a lot of the products for these developers are like really limitless. Like they can do almost anything. They can do energy transfers, financial markets, medical records, secure documents, medical. Oh my God, I'm going to restart. I wrote it twice. 
So, and the products for these developers to create are literally limitless, right? They can do energy transfers, which is freaking nuts in my opinion. Like that's like the future future, financial markets, medical records, secure documents, and like really stuff that we can't even think about yet. So in my opinion, you can just basically build on Ethereum, almost everything in my opinion, that's going to be in the future here. So if you want something that's not necessarily like a gold add to your portfolio, Ethereum would be like the interesting, cool thing that could turn into the, you know, the growth sector as a whole kind of comparison here. Yeah, and institutions have been really hammering home. I know JP Morgan started JP Morgan coin. Uh, they built it on Quorum, which is kind of their enterprise iteration of the Ethereum blockchain. So we'll talk on this a little bit more. I think as more and more people want to learn about uh, crypto, we can certainly touch on that. So uh, let me pause here. Super interesting. I know JP Morgan's getting involved in Ethereum, Tony. Um, some of these other coins that are out here. Uh, I've been hearing a ton. Uh, hold on. God damn it. One second. Yeah, Ethereum's definitely an interesting one. I know JP Morgan is very heavily invested in building on the, the Ethereum uh, blockchain. And so some of these other ones that are out here, you know, I've been hearing a ton of this thing called Chainlink. People are saying it's going to 1,000. I just bought some just because of that. You were talking about it. I know another guy that mentioned something like Digicoin. Again, I think we're like buying Pokemon cards. Are these like, is this possible to have thousands of different coins? Like which ones are real? How do you sift through the noise? And and why do you like Link? Is this just a pump and dump that we're seeing on Twitter? Or is there actually something behind it? Yeah, so I, at first I did think it was like a pump and dump because I remember in 2017, all these coins that did an ICO, initial coin offering, half of them were like, more than half of them were like fake crap companies that people just like sold and made white papers for and people were just buying them because crypto was the hype back then. But honestly, Chainlink is actually the real deal in my opinion. It's built on top of Ethereum uh, and it claims to solve a lot of the issues that Ethereum has struggled with. So while Ethereum smart contracts occur on chain, Chainlink's platform aims to bridge this gap by providing the option to retrieve data off-chain. So it's pretty huge. They partnered with Ripple, big name. A lot of people were buying that in 2017, and it's starting to move back up now. They partnered with Google to place Google's data warehouse and intelligence solution BigQuery on an immutable blockchain. And there's also rumors of partnership with Swift. So, I mean, think about that. Like, they're partnered with Google. That's enough for me to say this is not fake. Uh, I'm going to have to deep dive more into this, but I am starting to buy, and I will be buying over time. Who knows? Like, maybe it gets as big as Ethereum. That would be, like, 20x from here. In my opinion, right, it's not something you put, like, half your money into. If you want to go and, like, let's just say you're only investing in crypto, Bitcoin would be the bulk, or Ethereum, depending on, like, the kind of investor you want to be, whether you're, like, a gold or growth kind of guy. And then, you know, Chainlink would be the smaller percentage of that, in my opinion. Love this new section here on cryptos. I think that's something we'll definitely be talking about a little bit more. Let's get back to stocks. That's something we know and love. And, Tony, you are about to call up Ikea because we basically hit that 3400 that you were talking about. Do we need to call them for a new table? Are you pounding this to 4,000, 5,000, 20,000? Or is this, is this dropping <laughs> back down? Man? Yeah, I'm gonna have to call them and send some metal tables, but I'm pretty sure I'll break those too, because pretty much like you know, I'll call 3387, 3400, right? So that's close enough for me. That's a table pound in my book. Um, and yeah, that's like, a 1200 point move from the March lows. And I don't think people really took into consideration how much dropping interest rates to basically zero and the Fed liquidity impacted the markets, right? So the reason I think the market's actually going to move higher, right, we can have some ups and downs. But in my opinion, we're going to test at least 
35, 40, maybe 36, 50 in between that range. And the reason I say this is it just a spade is a spade comparison, right? So if you look at QQQ, the NASDAQ, basically what happened is it shot over its highs by about 4.3%. So that, that gives me the 35, 40 target. Um, it might overextend a little bit because NASDAQ's already really extended because of tech and it was already the first mover by a mile, right? So it could be like these laggards and especially like the financials, industrial cyclicals and uh, you know some tech and other things will come back as well. So SPX might actually push a 3,600. But in my opinion, after that, the election's timing is going to be kind of a huge factor. So I'm actually probably going to go all cash September 14th. I don't think I'm going to be in longer than that. People want to say like, oh, I'll get out November 1st. You're going to be too late if the market dives. I don't think for sure it'll dive, but I'm going to be happy taking my gains for this two-month period of my second year and just being like, okay, well, let's see what happens. You can always get back in, but if the market dives because of one winner or the other, and I actually don't know if Biden or Trump, I don't know who's going to actually make the market drop because there's actually a lot of dissenting opinions about who would be bullish and bearish for the economy at this point. Um, you know, I really love this thing that Jim Peppers did say, though. Um, shout out to you. He says, if you're in the market long, then there's never a top. You could have called one and been wrong every time for the past five years. There may be a temporary top, but there's never a top. And I actually fully agree with this, right? The only way there's a top is if the world actually ends. And I mean like a real, real top, like we're never going to break over that high. I was reading something that the market's 70% of the time over its all-time high, right? So over time, population is going to grow. Companies are going to grow. Profits are going to grow. And you see the big rivers like Apple and Amazon, which are the biggest components of all the indices besides the Dow, which is just pointless to look at. And that is, in my opinion, if the biggest companies are doing well, the economy is actually like okay compared to what everyone thinks. Poor knows right. Stonks only go up uh, long term here. <laughs> <laughs> Tony, you're becoming quite the market god and people are starting to take notice. Uh, Largemouth13 said, I love the podcast, guys. You know, I can't wait for next week's episode. It's so informational and well planned so largemouth 13 you're the man thank you so much even though this is probably directed at tony i like to take the small wins <laughs> as i can any suggestions on books to read regarding technical analysis or anything else we could help new traders interested in options so tony i think he's saying besides pounding the table are we really the only resource out there yeah absolutely listen to pounding the table probably maybe i'm biased but that's my favorite um but otherwise you know i use a, a good amount of different platforms and people to just get my information and resources off of, right? So I'll just list a few here. Like TrendSpider, in my opinion, is the best charting platform I've ever used. A shout out to Jake. He works at TrendSpider, good friend of mine. Really, really love the platform. I use it every day. Another one I use is simply wall.street. That's kind of for portfolio setting and company research. They have all the data listed out, really easy to see, and they can track your entire portfolio, tell you like the future earnings growth of all the stocks put together in a percentage amount for your portfolio, see whether your portfolio is currently undervalued, overvalued. So shout out to Peru Saxena for showing me that on Twitter. I also love to use Twitter search forums, right? If I love a stock, like let's say I love LVGO, I'll search on Twitter with a dollar sign in front and then ticker symbol LVGO. And it'll give me something like OTRK, which is how I actually found OTRK, you know, because other people who are really interested in those spaces sometimes go into other stocks. And if they're all into growth companies, maybe they'll list a bunch, right? Like maybe if you type in Fastly, you'll find LVGO, you'll find SC and you'll find other stuff like that. So a lot of those people like to go with the same realm of what they want to be trading. Um, so in terms of books, you know, I love Predictably Irrational, a um, guy named Dan Ariely, pretty much a legend at the school I went to, you know, Duke legend, honestly, he is um, just master in behavioral economics and science and just really huge for psychology. You know, if you if you want to understand your brain and the brain of the people who operate in the markets, that's a huge thing to read. Reminiscences of a stock operator, that thing is honestly timeless. And that just gives you just a huge, well-rounded idea of 
the forces that act in the market and you know even personal tips of the guy who's in that who's honestly a fantastic trader i've read that book like cover to cover five times so really recommend reading both those two you don't really need anything else uh, in terms of news besides twitter and you know the, i follow a lot of people who post news instantly and i get alerts from that trade the news gets all the news instantly so trade the news.com really great it's a little pricey it's like 250 dollars or something a month but if you're a serious trader and this is all you do really well worth it and uh you know in terms of the great investors on twitter that i follow um ben and his twitter handle is at pattern profits really recommend following him he does a lot of great scans of different stocks for fundamental growth valuation reasons all that's great stuff and i really watch him a lot obviously peru Sexena, you know really like kind of one of my idols in the growth investing space I'm a new hedge fund manager, so I like to follow these guys who have done it for a long time and who are really, really successful. And they give you great tips and they help you not make mistakes that you would make otherwise, right? Experience is only everything. I got a shout out to Ophir Gottlieb. You know, he just does ridiculously thorough and good and just like visionary research. His CML Pro, um, CML Viz trade machine, I subscribe to all of them. All really great, you know, fantastic dossiers one-on-one interviews with the CEOs, CFOs of these companies. And I think, honestly, I think he has a 100% win rate for his picks this year. So the guy's a killer. If you're interested in options, no question, follow Smarter Trader. My mentor, he's just an options god. Really have nothing else to say about that. So you're saying that uh, Ophir is actually better than Leon Lotto, who who was bragging to us that he hits about 95% of trades. Ophir is hitting 100%. So take that, Leon Lotto. <laughs> <laughs> Leon's just buying Roku. That's his thing. Yeah. It is what it is. One day we will bring Leon on. He, we make fun of him quite a bit, but he, he's an absolute legend of a trader. We call him the scalp king for a reason. Obviously, you own a hedge fund, Tony. And so... One thing we've been talking about time and time again is, of course, hedging. Anyone can throw darts during a positive market. We just had this recent tech sell-off. Is this something that you think is the end? Are, are, are SaaS companies down for good? Or are you going to be buying back in here shortly? Yeah, I mean, I know a lot of people asked us. They said to expand on hedging. It was discussed briefly. Could have saved me this week. What would be more a normal hedge for you, like 4 to 5% of your portfolio value and increase as market becomes more extended? So, like... You know, I do sometimes look at percent of portfolio value to do my hedges, but in my opinion, this is no way the end of software or e-commerce or anything. Sure, like as the economy gets back to normal, maybe things get used less, but as we've said five times in the show already, the base of the users, the base of the growth is going to be exponential from wherever it was. So to get back in, in my opinion, you got to see some type of uptrend happening, momentum coming back. These are momentum stocks. So when they start moving, they move for a while. When they start dropping, they drop pretty quickly and it's not as long as they do moving upwards, right? So um, I know a couple of people I follow, like Peru Sexena uses the five-day exponential moving average over the 10-day exponential moving average. So when the five-day crosses the 10-day, you know, he gets back in. Everyone needs an indicator. I use a bunch of them together because I like to have as many uh, different pieces of the puzzle to tell me what I should do next. So I use charts. I use anchored volume weighted average price from TrendSpider's system. Sometimes I just use basic trend lines, horizontal lines and stuff like that. And you can also kind of see like indicators of other stocks, like follow TDOC and LVGO, because that is only getting sold, in my opinion, because hedge funds had too much overexposure to both. So they had to trim one of half or you know an entire position in one of them, depending on which one they wanted to hold going into the merger later this year. Um, but if you just look at all these growth stock charts, they're pretty much identical, right? So they go to the top of this channel that they started in April, March. And then they go to the bottom of this channel, and then they go to the top of the channel, and then they go to the bottom of the channel. So they're ping-ponging in between this range until they break up or break down. So what I do is, even though I know these are long-term, lovely investments, at the top of the channel, I will buy next week's or this week's puts against my shares. 
And as it goes and approaches closer to the end of the channel, I'll start to take off my hedges and I might go completely unhedged in certain positions. And they don't always move together, right? Like Etsy still at the top of its range. Fiverr is still close to the top of its range, but Fastly is at the bottom and LVG is at the bottom. So even though they have similar patterns, the timing is off for them. So you kind of have to watch each one individually and hedge them individually. So in my opinion, a lot of people want to buy SPX puts every night and protect the downside in case we have a huge crash. You're going to be way better off hedging your software individually, in my opinion. And that's just what I've learned from experience. You, you don't want to be in a position where things get killed because you didn't take profits and you don't want to be in a position where you're overextended in a sector or a general market trend. And then it goes the other way and you don't want to sell anything, but everything you have is going down. So in my opinion, I always buy weekly next week or monthly SPX puts if the market's super crazy extended just to hedge my overall portfolio. But on individual growth names in those sectors, I do the same. I buy individual puts on those stocks as well. One thing we probably don't talk about too often is balancing your emotions, work-life balance, right? I have another full-time job. This is your full-time job and, and you're trading constantly. But how do you balance your emotions if things happen in your own personal life? Do you go out and start trading when you're angry or you're upset? Does that affect your trades? And how do you personally manage those emotions when it does come to trading? Yeah, I'd say that like mentality is 99% of successful trading. Like you can have your system and your indicators and like your thesis and all that crap. But if you're not in the right headspace, you should probably just sell a bunch of stuff and hedge and then just walk away. And, you know, like the, that, that shit, Craig, that's his uh, <laughs> Twitter handle, nice handle, says uh, time is the ultimate prize. Wake up each morning thankful for more time to create memories with loved ones. Don't let the market or work get in the way of that and who is most important in life. So I actually lost a really close to a furry friend of mine on Monday in a pretty tragic way. And I just, you know, been thinking about it all week and it's kind of like messed me up men mentally uh, for like the last few days. So what I did this week is I just, I sold a bunch of positions and I was just kind of sitting there watching the market. Right? Like I don't want to walk away and not be watching in case like I do see something that's really easy. Like I was buying Teslas for the stock split. That was a really easy trade in my mind. I didn't have to really focus much mentally on that. Um, but you can really easily go into some tilt, right? Like you can just keep buying and buying and selling and selling like random different things and like risky options and oversizing stuff when your head's not right. So you have to know when to walk away and you can always come back. So, you know, the casino is open 24 hours a day. If you lose all your chips in the first hour because you're pissed off because your wife left you, you should you should probably not do that. So we're getting into the part of the show that I needed to take a adult beverage break here shortly. But before we split from the programming, you just mentioned stock splits, right? Oh, nice one. Nice Apple. One. <laughs> yeah, I got to have one witty comment every time. Uh, as a, an average one. We'll try to get something better here later in the show. But Tesla, Apple, both split in here shortly, I believe on 831. Don't quote me on that. As I mentioned, Apple and Tesla are going to be undergoing those stock splits. How's that going to continue to affect the price action? I think um, that stock splits are the most bullish thing that a stock can do, honestly. Like, you know, just like from a management company business directive perspective. And there's really nothing else that can get people interested and involved like a stock split. I mean, you saw Apple's market cap go up 300 billion and it wasn't because of their earnings, right? They were growth, but nothing has, doesn't move 300 billion on that. It moves 300 billion because. Apple is going to be like around a hundred bucks and people are going to be able to buy it in every account. And like, sure, we have like those, you know, softwares now that every broker has where you can buy fractional shares and this and that, but either way, like it, it makes it a better investment for a lot of people because people don't want to buy one share of Tesla at 1650. 
they're fine to buy a couple at 400 and you know you're not going to buy 100 shares of tesla at 1600 and it, just the general interest of people wanting to get into these stock splits in my opinion is just going to continue like this is you've seen this in history it always has a positive effect on the stock and i think in my opinion like it's going to start happening a lot more and i would love to see you know some of these stocks later of course i want to play options in them for a little while longer but maybe shopify cmg chipotle um Mercado Libre even, I actually don't hope that one splits because it's the best options trading stock for me. So I think that that might actually set a precedent, right? Like we haven't seen a stock split in so long and then we got two in the same week or so. So I think a lot of companies are going to start leaning towards that. A lot of these stocks that are trading over a thousand bucks could probably see a stock split soon with a precedent here. Do you think some of that has to do with these companies starting to see these Robinhood investors knowing that they may not have $1,600 to buy a stock? but they do have $400 to buy a stock. Is this mostly retail investors coming in or or institutions pounding the table as well? Yeah, it's both of them, honestly. And obviously, as we were talking about before, the demand and supply for Robinhooders and the Portnoy's, those people are going to be wanting to buy. Nobody wants to be like, oh, I own 0.1 of Tesla. Like they'll say, I own one Tesla share and they'll be more happy. That's a psychological thing that is just going to happen. And it's been happening since the market's been doing its thing. So you really just, it's not going away. And it's always, in, in my opinion, 99% of the time going to have a really positive impact on the stock. Um, Robin Hooders are going to be able to load way more. Institutions are going to be happier to buy it. It's easier for options to, right? Like you can sell cover calls way easier. And there's going to be less volatility. So a lot more people can add those stocks to their portfolio. Like, even though Apple's like the biggest company in the world, it's very volatile these days. So trading at 100, it's not going to move 10 points. It'll move one or two. So that also is appealing to a lot of people who manage funds. So you're just mentioning, you know, some of these stock splits are allowing people to actually jump in and they can kind of buy what they afford, which leans into your first Tony's rules. So Tony, you got two rules for us this week. I kind of gave a teaser to sneak in your first one. Walk through these first two rules and then we'll jump in to wrap up the show with stocks to watch here. Absolutely. Yeah, I think this is probably the biggest rule besides like, you know, I said this before make sure you can trade another day. And that kind of really goes well in hand with risk only what you can afford, rule number one, right? Like if you're out here trading weekly options and you have a $10,000 account, you're not gonna bet $5,000 on weekly options unless you can fund that $10,000 account tomorrow and not care, right? So if you can afford to go all in like 10 times in a row and don't care if you go to zero, by all means, have fun. But you know, if you, you know, work a nine to five job and this is kind of like just like a you want to put money in something and appreciate it over time, you know, risk only what you can afford. You don't have to do risky stuff. You can buy some dividend stocks like SPG. You can do, you know, just a small allocation and growth stocks and in the bigger names more so. So in my opinion, that's really, really huge to do. You kind of want to make sure that you're not overdoing your risk tolerance and lying to yourself because so many investors, including myself and you, a lot of the time, we do lie to ourselves about what we're okay with, what we're comfortable with and what we will be sad if we lose. So just don't lie to yourself. Risk only what you can afford. Rule number two, and I think this might be like the biggest thing for figuring out what you're buying and why you're buying it is just develop your own system. You got to follow it and trust it. Have the courage of your own convictions. And I love that quote. I think that's from Reminiscences of a Stock Operator. But really, you, you want to know that what you're buying is something that you believe in. And if you don't believe in it, then you probably shouldn't be buying it, right? Unless it's a trade for a quick Leon Lotto scalp. You want to make sure that anything you're doing is something that's not going to be able to be fettered by noise. If people come in and say, this company sucks, la, 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 but you've done your research, you believe it, and there's no new information, you stick to your convictions. Because nine times out of 10, if you put the work in and you really believe in it, you're going to be right. 
our favorite section every week. What are some of these stocks to keep an eye on? And we will preface this by saying this may not happen today. It may not happen tomorrow. So do not give a shit if it does not pop the first week here. Long term, though, what are some stocks that you're keeping an eye on over the coming weeks, months, years moving forward? Yeah, absolutely. I want to give a shout out to everyone who's asking these questions. We try to embed a lot of the questions into our podcast now to make it flow more. So you'll be seeing a lot more questions throughout each segment. And it actually, we base a lot of the segments off these questions because we think they're good questions to ask and build upon. And so we'll keep doing that each week and we'll save your questions for the next week if we didn't get to them this week. The stocks to keep an eye on, you know, my five biggest holdings, Mercado Libre, Tesla, LVGO, SC, Square. I'm going to always keep an eye on those. I think those are game-changing, world-changing companies. Um, but in the future here, I know you were talking a lot about apps, digital turbine, almost double revenue from 2019 to 2020. Uh, companies' application business went up 45% on their earnings with the uh, mobile posse acquisition. Segments now 45% of their overall revenues, which is pretty huge. You know That means that they did a great acquisition and it's working for them. So it's generating nice recurring revenue. Business keeps expanding. right? On the media side, they've signed a master service agreement with T-Mobile's advertising team, distributing their brand relationships uh, with names like Shell, Nike, Walgreens, and so on onto their platform. So that's really good. Um, a lot of people have been mentioning this stock. It's got a lot of strength, pattern profits, and a couple of our friends, you know, DJ, shout out to you as well for bringing that to my attention. So I'll be keeping an eye on that one. I probably will dollar cost average it just because it's gone up so much and I don't want to buy at the top in my whole position. Uh, another one I've just been doing so much research into is Fiverr. I know it's like, it's still up a ton from our first pound at 94. It's now at 108. But in my opinion, you know, Fiverr is kind of like the Amazon of jobs. And it's really going to be a world changing company, I think. And it's really low market cap. Maybe it doesn't get to 100, 200 billion, but I think in the future, it's going to be a really, really great return. SEC Limited, I was just reading some data over the weekend, just more and more in, into their earnings that are coming this week. This company is just a grand slam, like master in their space. They do payment processing, e-commerce, online gaming. And I mean, it's crazy. I was reading somewhere like the online gaming industry for watching people shop is like $60 billion. And it's ridiculous. Like, so it could be anything in that SE is like really killing it. The average amount of time that people spend on the SE gaming platforms is like two hours a day in China, two hours a day that the average person spends on SE's game. So what, what else do I need to say? That's a grand slam. You know, they're, they've done really well in the last few months. Maybe their earnings take them down, but this is not something I'm selling. I will buy a crap ton if it goes down. Melly, obviously, like I'm obsessed with this company. Um, you know, I think it's actually doing really, really strongly for its earnings this this last Monday. Most of these other stocks like Shop and Amazon haven't even moved back up at all, but Melly is almost right back up to where it was last Friday. So clearly that's showing you it's the leading software growth e-commerce stock. Very, very bullish on this one, my largest holding. And that is not going to change until it gets to $500 billion market cap. You can quote me on that in a few, maybe 100, maybe 100 episodes, but it'll, it'll get there. Futu, once again, huge earnings beat, just massive growth, tensions from China and the US happening. Once again, you know, you see a company like that just blowing out revenue, blowing out EPS, like that is not a sell in my opinion, right? I, I'm just going to continue to hold this one in long term. Once again, these are long term holds, right? Like we're not going to say that they're going to go up 100% on Monday. But if I'm buying these long term in my fund, I did 122% in the first year. Past performance is never indicative of future performance, but I use the same trends and I use the same analysis for my investments. And I've concentrated a lot into stocks like these. And these four specifically are, you know, some of my biggest holdings. We got to wrap things up. I know I got to write my speech here for my stepsister's wedding, Mazel Tov, to Jeremy and Nicole, who are getting married here later today. We love all of the advocacy that we're getting in the comment sections on Twitter. A lot of the love, a lot of the haters, we love it all. So 
Wanted to thank everyone once again in honor of Anthony's furry friend we recently lost and Africa, as we mentioned. Anyone that does subscribe and donates to the show, 100% of those proceeds will be going to an African animal rescue that we will be sharing here on the next episode. And this wraps up Pounding the Table, Episode 7. 